Welcome to the SparkCom podcast where we talk about innovation trends and what's coming next. How are you doing today, Adam? I'm doing great. How are you, Manny? I'm doing very well. Uh, as you know, and I, I haven't made it a, a very public, but um, you know, I'm working at a, another startup here to start from zero to hero, right? Uh, the device to help people breathe easier. And uh, for this week's topic, it got me thinking about um, the kind of DNA and the kind of thinking that an entrepreneur has, has to have and has to exhibit, uh, and not only thinking, but action. So I just want to kind of frame it up and get your thoughts on how uh, the innovation or innovative thinking can be bought, brought to the entrepreneurial process. Well, so, I'll start off by saying, Manny, I don't think that it's in your DNA. I think anybody can be an entrepreneur and anybody can be an innovator. Uh, I think it's more a matter of putting yourself in the right place. Yeah, I think that's, I agree with that. And I would, I would also add that it takes a certain amount of grit uh, to actually grind it out. And I think that, uh, you know, changing, people don't change very much. We all right. kind of know that and science backs it up. And so if you're naturally uh, risk adverse, if you're naturally, um, you know, like stability, it's going to be harder for you to make that jump although not impossible. And then there's the other extreme of the, the risk takers that are you know, flying out of airplanes and this and that. Um, and so that's the other extreme. So uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, what do you think the average age of, the, of a successful startup entrepreneur is? I'm gonna guess it's about 38. Pretty close, 45. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, 45. So they did a study where they studied, uh, you know, entrepreneurs over the past uh, 20 years. And they looked at the ones that uh, had the long-term success and were able to, to manage the storms and go from nothing to something. And they, it was 45. Um, wow. Now, we think that it's 28 or 29 or 32 or yeah. these, these low numbers because it's, it's sort of romanticized on, uh, on the media, on TV and movies and all that you get these young entrepreneurs in their, in their garage, you know, at 22 years old coding something and you know, the whole Facebook story and those do exist, but they're very rare. Yeah. So it got me thinking about when I speak with people that are thinking about starting a company, um, their number one fear is that they will fail, which is natural. Mm -hmm. But as we all know, failure is a part of life and can also be one of life's biggest teachers. So let me ask you this question. Uh, from a perspective of uh, CEOs and founders you admire, is there anybody in particular that comes to mind? Well, you know, there's a lot of people that I've worked around that uh, I thought did well, but, but I think I'd rather come back to, the, to that question in a little bit different context, which is to say, um, trying to think about the kinds of people who were ready to make the big commitment. Um, what I would say, you know, I, I understand fear of failure, but what I've also seen a lot of, and this happens in corporate management, but specifically with entrepreneurs, is it's actually an unwillingness to commit wholeheartedly into what they do. You know, what they, they'll say, well, I'd like to start up this company, but then their back of their minds is kind of like, but if it doesn't cash flow in three months, I want to quit. Or, you know, I'm going to keep my side gig, or let me start this up as a gig project while I'm working full time. Now, there's, they're, not, they're not in it. They're not in it with that sort of uh, Spanish mentality of burn the boats. You know, I've got to make this work. 
And, and so what I see is and what I admire is I tend to admire people that'll, that'll make that commitment, you know, that'll say, well, this is going to work. And if somebody says, well, what if it doesn't work? They say, I'm sorry, failure is not an option, right? That old Paul yeah. 13 phrase, right? And they really get committed to it. I mean, have you ever noticed that, Manny, how, how many times you'll see somebody who says, I want to be an entrepreneur. You say, well, okay, go do it. And then do you see that sense of an unwillingness to really commit? All the time. All the time. There, there's the, the two schools of mentality, right? There's the school of burn the boats and there's a school of don't quit your day job. Yep. And I think that, uh, again, it goes back to the personality and the kind of person that you, you might be. Um, I lean towards the burn the boats, but I was a, uh, a product of kind of both. So when I started my first um, successful company, I, was, I had a day job. I was building a new division of a company, uh, a microelectronics uh, contract manufacturer. And I had, we had the charge of starting from zero, a uh, new division. And we were uh, one year in, and this is about 2009. So you can imagine the economy was on the, on the ropes. So, um, and I always wanted to start something, right? And I was always struggling with that. When's the right time to, to, to start a new company? And boom, the ax came down. Uh, we had the phone call because I was working remotely. They said, well, listen, you did a fantastic job and uh, we're gonna have to let you go because we have to focus on the core business, you know, again. And yeah, yeah, what we were trying to do here is that actually, what's funny is that company ended up dying about two years later for, yeah. for reasons that you and I know, even though we haven't talked about this, it plays right in the playbook of, of what we discussed. But in effect, it was, a, uh, it was a good thing in the end. A lot of times we're, we're faced with, uh, with a moment of uh, a big moment in our life and we think it's negative, but in fact, it was very positive because I took that opportunity to actually launch my business. I didn't have, I couldn't find a, an extremely high paying job in, in Tucson. I just moved back. So I thought, you know what, this is the time. And, and I fumbled through it. Everybody would say, well, why are you starting a, a, a business in a, in a deep recession? And, and get this, here was my answer. And, uh, you know, we, we have kind of a joking thing with Microsoft. Well, that's when Bill Gates started his, his company. And he used to say that the best time is when, when everybody's going in one direction, you go another direction. And I was able to grow my company very quickly and I assembled the right team and and hiring people was amazing because everybody was unemployed. I mean, as far as the, uh, the uh, percentage wise, I picked up engineers and I built it up, grew it quickly, but then I was, I was unable to sustain it because I recognized later on that I didn't have a strong operations person. My thinking of strategy of, you know, I'm the guy that's on the horse with the sword out in the front of the line but I can't be the guy shooting the catapults or doing the big, you know, bringing the, all the armies through. And that's an operations person. And I, I, I failed in my company, but I learned in the end on what it takes to actually make something successful. So there's another, another thing I was reading this morning about the topic regarding um, the kind of companies that we admire these, you know, the Teslas of the world and the Facebooks and all that. And besides innovative thinking, innovative action, uh, what else do you think is the number one thing that the leadership of these organizations um, exhibit? 
Well, I'd like to think it uh, would be an ability to really have a, a strong sense of where the future lies and, you know, a good sense of trends and good, good ability to identify future scenarios. Am I close? You're pretty close. You're pretty close. The term that HBR used is effectual reasoning. Hmm. So what it, what it basically means is that they're able to see the future with, um, with a very loose version of what is happening now but understand that it's, it's not a, uh, a straight line, right? A lot of people that are in these big corporate companies like Kraft, and we talked about these, you know, they're growing 2% a year, two and a half, and they, they rally if they have a 3% year. Uh, and we know where that goes, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we understand that those are straight line kind of people, right? And yeah. we've talked about this over and over again, people that, that are, un, are afraid to make that jump because they don't know what the future will bring. The leaders of these big companies that, have, that are high flyers that we hear about, you know, these hero companies, all their leadership thinks that way. They think that this, is, this has never been done and we're the people that are gonna do this, right? The other companies think this has never been done and we'll let somebody else do it or we're gonna make cheese. <laughs> well, I always think that people forget it takes a balance in terms of style for an organization to be successful. As you said, you have this ability to uh, think about the future, get things started, you know, to, to, to when there's no momentum, create some momentum, you start that snowball moving downhill. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, once at some point it reaches a certain size, you got to manage the snowball. And the nice thing is we graduate 350,000, 350 million MBAs a year globally. And these people are largely trained on how to be operationally focused, right? We don't teach yeah. innovation in college, in, in undergraduate or graduate schools of business. And so there's, there's a large pool of people that you can have that can be accessed who can really focus on that idea of what's going to be a great value delivery system, right? Yeah. And so if the good, that's the good part about being an entrepreneur. If you can start to visualize that future and you can see what could happen, and you start moving out that way with your solution. You know, you got a really good, strong value proposition. You start moving out. But if it's not clicking, the good thing is, is you can find people you can talk to. And they can say, well, you know, you need to tweak your value delivery system. Why are you using this delivery system or that delivery system? You know, the supply chain, product, technology, uh, materials, whatever. You know, they can start to ask you questions about it because that's the way, you know, an operationally oriented person would do. And so it's important for entrepreneurs to have these people around them, like you said, people that can help build out the value delivery system and help it to be efficient so you can continue to grow the organization as you're trying to stay on trends. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. So if we look at how long businesses have been around, approximately 5,000 years, right? Mesopotamia, trading you know, wheat for fish and this and that on the, the banks of the Nile and all that, whatever. And then you fast forward, 4,900 years, give or take. I mean, we know that business has only been studied as a, as a thing for the past 100, 125 years, right? Before right. it was economics and this other thing, but as a thing, it's not that old, right? That's and then you fast forward a little bit more and you get the whole startup nation, startup thinking and startups being studied. And that's only been around for maybe 20, 25 years. That's right. What's remarkable is even with understanding what all this data has, has proven to be uh, you know, on paper, there's still a, a, a lack of entrepreneurial spirit and drive. You hear about, you know, we've talked about this in the past, how many businesses are started up every year 
and how many die. I mean, it's a constant thing. About 650,000, give or take, are started every year in the U.S., and about 500 and, uh, you know, whatever, 90,000 are killed every day, every year, you know, so it's like this balance. And I think that for the, our listeners and viewers, if you're thinking about starting a business, if you have an idea and you have uh, the, that willingness, sometimes it takes just that one spark to get you over the other side. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of things happen in society as a whole that have been in the way of, of some of the entrepreneurial type of behavior that we had uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So, like, I was looking the other day at the average age in which a male uh, leaves home. When I graduated from high school at age 18, there was no doubt that I was not living at home. My parents <laughs> were crystal clear about this, right? Um, Today, I was reading, I think it's in Italy, the average age at which a male son leaves the house is 33. I think in Spain, it was 28. In the United States, the number's now like something like 26. I read that somewhere around um, 45 or 50% of college graduates that are still single were still living at home. Uh, this is not the kind of sociological environment that breeds entrepreneurship. It should. Because you should say, okay, if I'm living in a situation where I don't have any costs or I have very, very low costs, then I can experiment. But instead what's happening, people are becoming just the opposite. They're like, well, okay, I've got a job of some kind and I'm living here with, uh, in a house with these, my parents or my grandparents or my aunts and uncles or whoever, and they're just hoarding the cash. You know, and I'm sort of like, wait a minute, well, this is the prime time when you should be trying to take a few experiments. You could experiment with your career, you experiment with your job, experiment with entrepreneurship. And the opposite is happening because they think they get so comfortable in that situation that they just don't feel compelled to have to go out and do something as hard as being an entrepreneur. Yeah, you hit, it, you hit the nail on the head with one of the sayings that I – I like to share with people and they, they kind of look at me funny when I do. And when I tell them that comfort is the, is the killer of progress yeah. and they don't understand it. What do you mean? And I start to explain and then they understand when I say, could you live without a paycheck in order to do something that you love? And the answer is 99.9% .9 is no. They, they might love, they might have a passion for something, but their unwillingness to let go of what is comfortable, which is that steady paycheck, the insurance, the whatever you want to name it. Um, and that's what really separates the successful entrepreneurs, at least the ones that, that put themselves out there from the ones that don't. And I find this interesting because today the, the biggest of all the trends that we track, the biggest trend right now in the United States and globally is the gig economy. You know, we're seeing now what's going on for 14 years and it just keeps getting bigger every year. There's this issue of people that are effectively self-employed. But what's happening is instead of people being self-employed by being, a, say, a, an author uh, or being somebody who does consulting or some sort of problem solving, a lot of people say, well, I'm self-employed, but what I'm doing is I'm driving a lift car or I'm driving, I'm delivering for DoorDash. And that's not the same way. You know, you're not an entrepreneur if you're delivering for DoorDash. Uh, that's, that's just an alternative sort of a job, which has an immense amount of freedom and has an immense amount of uh, opportunity for you to try to rethink or how, you want, how many hours you want to work, what you want to do. But it's not 
entrepreneurship because you're not out trying to solve a problem. You're not trying to develop new value propositions. You're not trying to, to build something bigger than yourself, which is what entrepreneurs inevitably do. Exactly. But again, the gig economy is the perfect time to be doing it because if you want to do something, in the old days, we had to hire people, right? Yeah. Remember, yeah, and it was expensive. You had to find them, pay a recruiter maybe, interview a lot of people, and then you didn't get it right, so you'd hire somebody, yeah. and two or three months later, you'd let them go, and you lost that time, you lost that money, and you're in the hiring process again. But today, in the gig economy, you need some bookkeeping help, you need some graphics work, you need mm -hmm. somebody to make up an ad, whatever, you know, you need some writing, you need some HR help. It's all out there in the gig economy at a very low price. Which yeah, absolutely. Ship less risky. This is the time in, the, in our history as human beings, the best time to start a business and be successful in the shortest amount of time ever. Yep. And we, people don't understand that. They think, oh, well, these big things have already been developed. Well, just imagine 25 years ago, oh, these things like little phones would carry around, you know, like these weren't even around yet, right? 20 years ago, they were just coming around. I remember pagers, by the way. Uh, and so I think about those that say, well, you know, everything's been invented already. Everything. Yeah. And I'm kind of, I chuckle about that because, uh, you know, the world keeps on moving forward and the there's time. new things happening all the time. The, uh, the world's first trillionaire is probably walking the earth right now, running around, working on some AI algorithm yeah. that's going to define something crazy. This is Mark Cuban was mentioning, he was asked the question. And he says, yeah, the, there's a trillionaire walking around right now with an idea on, uh, on AI. We'll, that's what he believes will be the likely source of the trillionaire status. So lots of opportunities right now for this kind of thing. Uh, so tell me back in, in your day when, you're, when you started your, your consulting business, what, 20 years ago, give or take? Yeah. What was the landscape like then versus what it is now? You know, we'll kind of you can blend in COVID or not. It doesn't really matter because in the end, even COVID is just going to be a blip on the radar and we'll just keep on pushing forward. Well, I think the biggest thing was that I identified that the consulting business or helping people uh, had started off with uh, small firms and then they became enormous, right? And inside of most consulting firms, the goal became how do I sell more bodies? And, and what, that created for me was a gap because that's not a value proposition. Um, you know, making sure that I can put 10 or 20 or 30 people long-term at some client location uh, is, I'm not, that's not a value proposition. Yeah. And so I started saying what I think is going to happen here is that we're going to see all of that kind of very low end um, body shopping kind of work is going to go to the low cost provider. And we were seeing the emergence, you know, we had a few years already of people coming from India and China and other lower cost countries providing these sorts of services. And then you're going to have to have people that are providing more insight and more thoughtful solutions. And those are going to probably be much smaller firms because, you know, why do we need a lot of overhead? Why do you need to stack? right? From a senior partner to a partner to a senior delivery manager to, you know, that, that sort of stacking of hierarchy didn't seem to me like it added much value in that business because what you're trying to do is help clients get to the result, get to the answer as quickly as possible. So I saw that that was going to come down to something smaller. And so um, I literally as a senior partner at Computer Sciences Corporation running a business that almost had a billion dollars of revenue, walked out the door. Walked out the door, uh, wrote a book, published it, and started up my own consulting firm. 
Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, the, the thing was, is that all I did was look at the trends. You can see what trends were in consulting with the Coopers and Lye brands and the Anderson Consultings and, and the CSCs like I was in. And you just could, there was no reason to sit there because you could see that when business was going to go to the low yeah. cost provider. It was, it was time to move. And what struck me was most of the people I was there with, most of the partners that I had in my, in my section of the business, they just wrote it to the end and then ended up trying to get jobs in their clients. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's common. I'm reading a really good book by an author that I admire named Daniel Pink. Have you ever heard of that guy? No, that's a new one to me. So Daniel Pink, he wrote a book that I liked called When, W-H-E-N, When, which is the science of when to do things. Uh, everything from, um, you know, when to go to the doctor and, and have surgery to when to, to have your best thinking. And anyway, it's a great book. But the second book I'm reading by Daniel Pink is a one called Drive. And Drive discusses, and by the way, when I say read, I mean audiobook because the way my life is driving everywhere, pun intended, it was easier to just listen to it on, on uh, audiobook, right? So I won't spoil the end of the book or whatever, but I'll just talk about two of the big topics he mentions, which is intrinsic and extrinsic, I can't even speak, intrinsic and extrinsic um, motivation for somebody. And they've did tons of studies over the past 25, 30 years about what it takes to motivate somebody. And we have it all wrong from the business standpoint. We have it all wrong in that we want, when we start to reward people, workers or employees for work being done, if we reward them with money, it turns out that there's a negative effect on, on how the end result, the outcome, uh, turns out. Let me give you one example and I want to get your thoughts on this because it's, it's fascinating. So they did a study where they, they went to India and they um, offered um, some amount of money to, to, they took a group and they split it up into thirds. The first third received was, they did their work and then out of the blue, they, they received bonus. Okay. That's the first group. Um, and then they, they did this, the second group they told them that, okay, by the way, we're going to, uh, for every time you do this, you're going to get some money for it. Okay. And then they did that to a third group where they basically said, okay, we're going to do this as well, but you're going to get a lot more money. And it turns out that they, they did the study afterwards when they studied their, how effective they were. The group that received the bonus bonus out of the blue bonus worked harder, more diligently, and overall better than the other two groups, hmm. right? You would think that there would be no, I mean, they were just working just to work. They didn't expect a bonus. They received the bonus and there was just kind of a plus. The second group that, re that, uh, that received money for doing the work scored less or more poorly than the other one, the first group. And then the third group you'd expect it to just do is like really well, they were the worst. They were the worst. They were motivated the least where they were like given six months pay for doing these sort of things. I mean, it was ridiculous. They didn't, very few of them achieved that goal because to them it was so big that it actually scared them and prevented them from actually doing the work. So what are your thoughts on that? That's very counter what we hear in daily life. Well, one of the things that I've discovered talking to a lot of entrepreneurs is that the results 
are less, not really well motivated. I, I haven't met many entrepreneurs that said I, I did it for the money. You know, <laughs> most of them said, well, I, I saw an opportunity to get into business and I thought this would be something good to do. And they, they really got into it just for the love of doing it. You know, uh, maybe they liked the, the particular product they were selling. They liked the kinds of people that were their customers. They enjoyed the technology they were working with. Something like that really had them buzzed. And it was the fun and the enjoyment of the work that got them into becoming an entrepreneur. Yep. And then because they loved it, because it was fun, they kept getting better and better at it, right? Which gets back to our thing at the beginning about fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and failure to commit, and all those sorts of things. If you love it and you really go after it, the odds are you're gonna have a level of success. I don't know how big that level of success would be. That depends a lot on trends and competition. That will determine exactly how big your success is. But if you really wanna do it, and you get out and you commit to it, the odds are that you'll have some level of success, right? And then if that success level just isn't satisfactory to you, you can try something else. But you'll never know until you make that really big commitment and you, and you go for it, right? Yep. Uh, and, and I think we just don't see enough of that. No. And uh, I have another friend who is uh, on the other end of the spectrum. He's closer to, uh, I think he's over 80 now. And he did a presentation about four or five years ago where uh, he stood up in front of a few hundred people and he was actually launching a new startup. And he said, seniors are the perfect startup CEOs. We don't have to worry about insurance. We've got Medicare. We have a lifetime of, of experiences and wisdom. We have no kids at home and we have all the time in the world. And so I, we, everybody chuckled in the room, but you know, it, it makes me think about that old adage, when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago or today, right? There's, there's no time to waste. If you really want to start a business and you really want to go at it, I, I think that just laying it out and making it happen, burning the boats is probably the most effective way to doing it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's one of the last bits I want to make sure that our audience gets, uh, uh, hears about. As you said, we've only been studying entrepreneurship for 20 years or so, 20, 30 years. It's really a very new topic. But MIT was able to raise a substantial amount of money. In my recollection, it was like $50 million dollars to do a study on what made, created a successful uh, entrepreneur. And uh, they, they looked at factors, amount of education, where they were educated, uh, parental background, uh, amount of money they had when they started, amount of money they were able to raise, ability to get patents, trademarks, and they had a lot, a lot of criteria, because so, they had a lot of money that they could spend on this study. They spent 18 to 24 months at it. When they got done, they said there was one factor that predicted the success of a startup. And it was highly correlated, seemed to, I mean, it was really the number one thing that came out and nothing else correlated. If you wanted to know how to predict if something was going to be successful or not, there was this one factor. You know what it was? Tell us. Sorry? Tell us. It was sales. Sales. And the answer, the reason I say this is because people have raised huge amounts of money. And I see people don't go into entrepreneurship because of reasons like I don't have enough money or I don't have enough time or I don't think I'm smart enough or I don't whatever, right? They have all these excuses. What that study proved was none of that makes you successful. Access to money, technology doesn't make you successful. What makes you successful is when you get out there and you sell something. Yep. When you sell something, you're connecting with the customer, you're, you're understanding their needs, their wants, their desires, and you're fulfilling those. If you can just get that in your head, what you don't need money, you don't need a brilliant idea, you just need to see a need 
and go out and fill it. And if they'll pay you to fill the need, you're started on the road to success. Absolutely. And I'll end today's podcast with uh, the words of the late, great Zig Ziglar, who is an amazing sales trainer and uh, talked about you're born, you're born a salesman. The minute you come out of the womb, you are crying and you made your first sale. <laughs> so with that, I'm, I'm going to sign off today. Uh, thanks for your time, Adam. Uh, we'll be releasing our course in a week or so. Uh, pretty excited about that. Any final words? Manny, I'm all for it. Let's create some entrepreneurs. All right. Take care of yourself. See you ya. too, Manny. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.